One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is, I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less, no thawing required. You can fully customize your Wild Grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box. And $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to 3rd Love, you can have both. 3rd Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. Michael Flynn has been indicted and is cooperating with Mueller's investigation. The Senate took a big step toward tax cuts. With very few days left in the legislative year, we're considering how our national priorities measure up to our professed love of children. This is Sarah from the left. And Beth from the right. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics. No shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance. Welcome to our Tuesday episode of Pantsuit Politics. We're so glad that you're here. And we especially want to welcome any news, new listeners who might have heard us with Jennifer Rubin on KCRW. We had such a good time being with Jennifer and reflecting on her conversation with Bill Crystal and sort of where the Republican Party is today. If you haven't heard that, we'll post a link in the show notes so you can check it out. We also really appreciate everyone who is checking out The Nuanced Life, our new podcast. We love your feedback and appreciate all your subscription and reviews. 
Finally, if you haven't yet, the Pantsuit Politics Gift Guide is up on our blog, and we would love your thoughts and any other great holiday giving ideas. Also, can I add an addendum to our Jennifer Rubin interview, which is something I wish I'd said on the air for all of those who have listened or are going to listen? Uh, we followed Bill Crystal, and he um, had some really nice things to say about um being a centrist and what it's like to be sort of a traditional conservative in Trump's America, you know, Bill Crystal sort of become the favorite of the left. And we were talking about um, diverse views and moving forward in our polarized age. And I wish I'd said, because you, you mentioned the Pod Save America guys, didn't you? No, I didn't. Oh, you mentioned them on our podcast. What I really wish I'd said in that interview is specifically with reference to Bill Crystal at the end of the Pod Save America's um, feature in the New York Times magazine, they said, they had this exchange with Bill Crystal, and at the end, they'll be like, well, just we'll just forget, and in a few years, we'll go back to hating each other. And what I wish I'd said is, hey, we don't have to do that. We don't, we don't, we don't have to do that. That's not, that is not a necessary part of this process. We can say, oh, we really learned that Bill Crystal and um, people of our political assuasion, persuasion align more than we thought we did. And while we disagree on the policy path forward, we do not have to go back to hating each other. Just, I wish I'd said that. I 100% agree with that. And I think that the whole discussion that Jennifer and Bill were having is one that I hope, whatever your views are, you can at least appreciate that they're taking these public stands. I was so excited to talk to Jennifer Rubin because I just admire the willingness to step out and say, yes, I am a conservative, but no, I am not this kind of conservative. The backlash that those folks receive I mean, I get enough and my platform is tiny, tiny compared to theirs. And so I'm just grateful for them and grateful for what they're doing. And I hope that we can continue to focus on what we have in common instead of what divides us. Okay, so, so we're going to try to do that. Yeah. As, as we talk today about a bunch of different things, we're going to very quickly go through the new, the weekend's news, the Flynn indictment and the president's tweets, the Senate's passage of the tax bill, how the legislature needs to fund the government and the CVS and Aetna merger. Before we dive into our main topic today, which is going to be kind of a mashup of a few different stories that all get to a question that Sarah posed an episode or two ago about whether our actions line up with our words about how much we care about children in this country. And then we'll end, as we always do, with what's on our minds outside of politics. So, Mike Flynn, singing like a little bird, it sounds like. I keep thinking about when his lawyer uh, wrote that crazy press release that said he has quite a story to tell and looks forward to telling it. And I'm like, let's hear it, Michael. Yeah, Flynn. what are we waiting I'm on? ready. Let's do it. Let's do that. Tell us that story. And I just want to say, um, once again, the poetic justice of the man who stood up at the RNC and chanted, lock her up, being indicted. I just, I would like to take a moment to just fully recognize that. Have we have we gotten through that moment? Do, you, I guess. do I need to give you a little I more mean, space? I mean, I could swim it? in it for a while. I could just swim around in it for a while, but that's okay. That's what okay. I think is interesting here is that this. I, I spent the weekend reading all of the documents that the Mueller team filed in in federal court, and this is a very minor count that he has pled guilty to, compared to what I think could have been on the table for him. 
And it seems like there's a lot of disagreement about what this means long term among legal experts, but the source of agreement seems to be he must have very valuable information to only have one count of obstruction of justice um, being brought against him. Yeah, that seems to be the sort of consensus. I did read a really interesting article that we'll link to, and I think it was in Slate, that sort of played out this very legalese argument about maybe he is, um, the way he's doing the charges is to prevent um, pardoning in a way that would allow for cases to be brought in state court so that they would still feel, face jail time or face prosecution um, even if Trump pardons some of his associates, which was really – I will put it in the show notes because it's, it's a very complicated legal argument and we'll put it in the show notes. But it was – I mean I don't think me or many people believe that Robert Mueller has a very strategic plan in mind and he seems to be executing it. Of that I am confident. So if you haven't been following this closely, the Reader's Digest condensed version is that Michael Flynn was indicted. Well, he wasn't indicted. He pled guilty to one count of obstructing justice based on two lies that he told to the FBI while he was the national security advisor that pertain to meetings that happened during the Trump transition. One of those lies was about whether or not he had talked with the Russian ambassador about sanctions that the Obama administration had just levied against Russia for interfering in our election. So he was asked, did you tell Russia not to escalate the situation following the imposition of these sanctions? And he said he had not had conversations about that when, in fact, he had. And the other lie pertained to reaching out to Russia and other countries about a U.N. Security Council vote that was coming up on Israeli settlements with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict about settlements. And in that instance, he had, in fact, reached out and asked Russia to either delay the vote on this resolution or help defeat it. So he lied to the FBI about those contacts with the Russian ambassador, and that is what he has pled guilty to. And there's a fine involved, and the court still has to sentence him. And Team Mueller's documents are very clear on the fact that they don't have sentencing authority here. They just have charging authority. And so uh, the sentence could be up to six months in jail. So two things. One... I find it fascinating, this argument that the Trump administration is putting forth, that, like, he was a renegade and he was sort of out on his own. There's emails that show him emailing with top campaign officials about this. So renegade is just problematic. And this, the distancing, like, Papadopoulos, whatever, I you I, I don't buy the distancing themselves and he was just a young guy, blah, blah, blah argument. But it makes more sense than your actual national security advisor. Do you I mean, in what universe does like this super trust advisor who was your top official with regards to national security become off on his own just a renegade that you didn't know what was going on? Come on. The story that's spelled out in these documents is that he was in touch with this whole camp of people who were at Mm Mar-a-Lago. And so it becomes even harder to think that they were walled off in any meaningful way. And this is where I think the president's hubris is really going to start to bite him, because if they were all in Washington, it would be less compelling 
I think that that mm-hmm. everyone was there was this tight knit group all working together. The fact that they were down at Mar-a-Lago, I think, adds a detail to the story that kind of changes the complexion of it. What I don't understand for people who are saying that this is um, another nothing burger, if the national security advisor of the United States, the person with the highest levels of classification about our most sensitive issues, is lying to the Justice Department about contacts with a foreign nation, and you think that's a nothing burger, we're starting from very different places about what our government is here to do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me, because I like to play pop psychology, it's sort of my favorite pastime, like all that, the sort of, like the statement from Flynn himself about how how hurtful it was to be saying he was treasonous. Like, I mean, I think that his, I think he probably has a pretty heavy loyal soldier instinct, but it seems to run out when it becomes that he seems like he was disloyal to the country itself. Like, I think that he wants to be seen as a good military mind, except for being fired a couple times, whatever. But I thought that that statement in particular on his part was really interesting. Well, let's talk about the import of those conversations, because there does seem to be disagreement among legal experts about whether what is underlying his lies is legal or not. So the statute at issue here is the Logan Act, which is a very old piece of law that kind of covers what has become a democratic norm that we only have one president at a time. I think that's a fair way to say this. Mm-hmm. And so while the Obama administration was still in office, but after Trump had been elected, the Obama administration still under the Logan Act and under just like our full understanding of how presidential transitions work should have still been the one clear voice communicating on behalf of the United States. And by reaching out to Russia to say, wait a second, like, we don't want you to do this thing on Israel because we have a different strategy on Israel. And please don't escalate in response to these sanctions because we're going to come in and have an entirely different relationship with you. Legal scholars debate whether that's illegal and whether the Logan Act could actually be enforced. I even saw where Alan Dershowitz questioned whether it's still good law. So there's disagreement about whether it was illegal or not. It is very difficult for me to understand taking a position other than that was a very bad idea that raises serious questions about this administration's agenda and that violates fundamental time-honored understandings of how presidential transitions are supposed to work and in a way that is unacceptable. I don't understand defending this behavior. I can understand not wanting a major UN Security Council resolution as to Israel, not wanting to have that pass if you have a different strategy, but like not everything is about you, right? And you don't get to arrange the cards as you'd like to play them before you take that office. I'm I'm just struggling. I'm trying to see the other side of this, and I'm struggling with that. Well, also, important side note, which I'm still piecing together the importance of this in the wider web. I think we all are. I can't wait to know what Bob Mueller knows about the wider web. But Jared Kushner was 
invested in illegal Israeli settlements and a company that builds illegal Israeli settlements this whole time. So all this, like his interviews on the the Israeli-Palestinian peace process and all this stuff, like he's got money in the game. Like how is this in any way, shape or form reasonable? Like I just there's a part of me that's that never believes that anything this administration does is really about some strategy they see as best for the country, but is about a strategy that they 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 have a strategy that they feel is best for them and their business interest. And that's the one they're trying to get played out. And I don't think that's untrue in Russia. And I don't think that's untrue in China. And I don't think that's untrue in Israel and Palestine. Yeah, I have been trying to avoid just speculating about any of this. If I had to sit here and speculate today, I think that all of this does come down to personal financial interests. I mean, because look at the, sorry to interrupt you, but like, think about two building on exactly that, like Manafort, they're surrounding themselves with Manafort, with people like Manafort and Flynn, who have financial interest in Turkey and financial interest in the Ukraine and all these places. So why wouldn't you so like why wouldn't you believe that the people they're surrounding themselves with who are clearly acting in the, their best financial interest and not the best interest of the country, even if they've convinced themselves the two things are the same. And but the top is totally different and does not perpetuate that environment at all. Come on. Sorry. No, I think that that's right. And I think that they probably I think the way that Donald Trump talks about it is probably close to the truth. Mm-hmm. I think it's probably something like, wouldn't it be great for us if, and oh, that wouldn't be bad for the country either. I mean, we might as well try it. We might as well try a different approach. Might as well try a good relationship with Russia. I don't know that there was ever this kind of nefarious, treasonous intention, but I think there was a lack of sophistication and a lack of curiosity and interest in learning all of the other dynamics that play into these relationships and that, I believe, is what is leading us down this course. If I if I had to place a bet today on what the story ends up being, it is a combination of greed and incompetence. Yep. Yep. I agree. So speaking of, Trump tweeted about the <laughs> Flynn indictment. <sighs> and my response to his tweet was like, all the best, Ty Cobb, because I, I mean... really don't understand why his lawyers allow him to comment. Or m- maybe allow is the wrong yes, word. Yes, it's shocking to me that he tweets about this, but but he did, and he tweeted in a way that was problematic because he said that he had to fire General Flynn for lying to Mike Pence and the FBI, the FBI. which was new. That was oh, new. He had said God before that it was about Mike that it was about Mike Pence, but the FBI was new, and that matters if you aren't immersed in cable news or um, newspapers. That matters because it sounds like the president knew when Michael Flynn lied to the FBI that he had done so. And in the chronology of events, that would mean that when the president fired James Comey as the head of the FBI, he knew that Michael Flynn had lied to the FBI, which makes out a pretty good obstruction of justice case against the president himself. So that problematic tweet having gone out into the world, one of his lawyers claimed to have written the tweet for him, which triggered this whole semantic discussion of the word pled in the tweet and Mm -hmm. whether a lawyer would have written pled versus pleaded. And, you know, 
it's just crazy the world that we live in right now. I just kept reading all that thinking, what a time to be alive. But the lawyer says that he wrote the tweet. He's trying to take the fall for it. And he says, by the way, the president cannot, as a legal matter, obstruct justice because he is the ultimate official in the Justice Department. That's ridiculous. He's the king. Then he went on to, let's not forget, attack and undermine our nation's top law enforcement agency, which is the FBI. And on the subject of the FBI, I'm seeing a lot of coverage from Fox News. They seem to be, and other conservative outlets, they seem to be hanging their hat on the fact that Mueller um, fired an FBI investigator or took them off the investigation for anti-Trump tweets. It was also the investigator leading the investigation in Hillary Clinton's emails. I'm not sure if that's accurate or not, but I just think it is so hilarious and ironic that what you want me to believe is that we can't trust anybody in the FBI because one small investigator sends anti-Trump tweets, but we can trust the entire administration and the Justice Department, of which the president apparently is the head, as he openly tweets political, partisan things about Hillary Clinton all the time. So the head can be as politically corrupt as they want, but one tiny finger, no, that means the whole thing is shot. I just don't even understand the argument they're trying to make anymore. Two things about that. One thing that I find interesting is that Miller did the right thing. He fired this person. Mm-hmm. This person is not still involved. The only reason this is a story is because he was fired. So, But that I, means that's, the whole thing is tainted now. Don't you get it? Like, every, you can't trust anything because he was there. So we just, nothing, nothing, we, we must, might as well throw the whole thing out. I feel like that's the argument they're making. Well, and that leads me to point number two, which is I, I what is the bottom of the cynicism that we're willing to adopt? We got this great email from someone saying that people adopted President Trump's worldview during the election because it was so much darker than the hope and change of President Obama. And so they felt like it was more believable and it was more realistic. And I thought that was a fascinating and very succinct way to describe some of his appeal to people. I don't understand what is left to believe in if that works for everything. If it's true that an entire investigation is tainted because one person had a political opinion, which, by the way, all these people have political opinions all the time. We're all just people. We're just people. We're human beings. Now, if you're overtly describing an agenda that is against a person you are investigating removal is appropriate and that's what happened but if everything is tainted by any degree of partisanship what do we have left nothing and and so like where do you want to go from here i guess that's my question if you're a person who adopts that line of reasoning where do you want to go from here should people only be investigated by folks of the same party but who refuse that to seems do any crazy investigating to me. i mean i feel like the, uh, the what them really being told is just trust trump just right. trust us just right. let us do what we want never disagree with us never imply that we might i mean i feel like really what when I have conversations with some Trump supporters, 
what I'm hearing is until he says what he did was wrong and bad, everything is okay. I'm sorry. That's just what it feels like they're saying. And he's not going to say that because he's incapable of saying that. During the about election, anything. he told us that he's never asked God for forgiveness for anything because what has he done wrong? <laughs> I mean, this is, a, this is a person who at a hyperbolic level can't take personal responsibility well, for anything. Well, and I just feel like, you know, what's really underneath that is however bad you think he is, your side is worse. So suck it up. Mm-hmm. However, whatever he screws up, Hillary would have been worse. Whatever, However bad this bill is, the Democrats would have been worse. However bad Roy Moore is at preying on teenage girls, Doug Moore supports abortion, so he's worse. That's really what it we can we can scrape the bottom because your bottom's lower. That's really the argument. Can I detour for a second about Roy Moore? I can't believe be, he's actually the president of the United States said go vote for him. I just I can't okay, go ahead. Well, and and I want to be overtly religious for a second. And so those of you who do not subscribe to my worldview, I appreciate your indulgence for just a moment. I was having a conversation with someone this morning about Roy Moore and Mandy, our our friend, friend of the pod, Mandy. And she had been having this exchange with someone who said, look, you can't equate supporting sexual predatory behaviors with supporting Roy Moore. They're two different things. It is possible, just like it was possible with Trump, to vote for the person because of the policies while still condemning the person's behavior. False. And I want to well, I want to reflect <sighs> on that for a second from a Christian perspective. I think the wonder and magic of the entire Christmas story for Christians centers around the fact that the vessel matters more than the policy. If if the message that Jesus Christ spent time on this earth to get out were more important than the vessel, then wouldn't Jesus have been born in a palace to kings, to people with political power, to people with economic means? The fact to me that God shows this young woman from mm. a rundown, nothing town of Nazareth to give birth to this kid literally in a barn tells me that the vessel matters and that as Christians, it is less important to impose our rules on other people and more important to live out the ultimate effect of the message that Christ was here to deliver. And so just speaking to people of faith who I think there, there is a whole political manipulation side of the religious right that we've talked about before, but speaking to people who have sincerely held beliefs about policies such as abortion, and there are many, I don't understand as a Christian unhooking those two things anymore. I really don't, because the more I reflect on the teachings of Christ and the lessons of the Bible, the more I believe that that the personal is more important than the policy. Mm-hmm. I mean, so sorry oh, about that. I just had to say. <clears throat> can I just say, too, that you don't have to go to an overtly Christian place. You can also just say one of the most fundamental tenets of human common sense is 
that do as I say, not as I do, doesn't work ever with children, Mm -hmm. with adults, with institutions. Think about in your time in your life when someone looked at you and said, do as I say, not as I do, and where you didn't feel like bursting into flames. You were so angry at the injustice of that. It doesn't work. And if you think as a person who feels that our government has fundamental problems, our government is too big, our government spends too much money, our government is doing something fundamentally unethical, in your view, such as supporting abortion, if you think that you further your cause by electing a man who says, do as I say, not as I do, you are fooling yourself. It doesn't work like that. And it's difficult because there aren't perfect people. There aren't perfect vessels. We struggle through hypocrisy because all of us are afflicted with hypocrisy. That's the nature of being human as well. And so there are lines that we have to draw. If we cannot clearly draw a line around Roy Moore, then I don't think we have any lines. Word. Well, we should move on to the tax bill because I know people are interested in that. One thing that I wanted to say about the tax bill is that I think we will do kind of a deep dive into what's in that bill after it's gone through conference. Um, In my mind, getting into all of the details today doesn't make a lot of sense because what's happened is that the, the House has passed its version, the Senate has passed its version. Now the two have to get together and come up with one that they can both agree on. So here's my big takeaways. A nonpartisan commission said that this bill will add $1 trillion to the tax, to our deficit. Several Republican senators were so concerned about this, they wanted triggers to raise taxes if the economic growth did not produce itself. Um, Those triggers were found to not follow uh, the proper procedure and were not allowed. So they decided to attack the analysis and say, we don't think that's going to happen and continue forward the Republican Party with a tax bill that adds $1 trillion to the deficit. And so I'm not going to listen to that anymore from conservatives with love and due respect. I care about the deficit. I think it's important. You guys no longer get to own that. So the other thing that I thought was really, really interesting, besides the the revocation of the individual mandate, um, the ridiculous child tax credit debate that we'll go into in the main section of the show, uh, The Daily did a thing on the the tax bill this morning. And I thought the point the reporter made was so interesting, which was we all know that they are funding this in large part by removing the deduction for state and local taxes. And I knew this and I thought about it. But the point this person made was this is a fundamental attack on a type of government in which we fund services and improvements through taxes because now the people paying high state and local taxes, it's going to it's going to come at a higher cost because they can't deduct it from their federal income taxes. And this person's thought process was now they'll start going, I don't want these high taxes. I don't care about the services. I don't necessarily think that's true, but I thought it was a very interesting point that like this is why they went after state and local taxes so that they could go under that go after the the the. Um, Governments in our democracy still in place in certain states in which there were high tax rates is to high tax rates to pay for services. I just thought that was a really interesting point. I thought so too. I've been thinking a lot about what I agree with in this bill because overall, do I agree with having a simpler, flatter tax code? I do. 
Um, I don't have a problem with eliminating some deductions. I think standarding, doubling the standard deduction is not a bad idea as you're making those trade-offs. What I have a problem with is the process here. I don't think the ends justify the means. I also think that just fundamentally, this is built on the stale premise that it will pay for itself because we'll have such a boom in the economy. I think if we have a boom in the economy, it will be artificial and the downside of that will be disastrous. I do not believe that a bunch of jobs are going to be created because of the corporate tax rate being cut. And so I do not believe there is any justification for adding to the deficit at this level to do this tax plan. And I think having done this on the evening that the national security, the former national security advisor pled guilty to lying to the FBI is a sick joke. Mm. And, and I think it's a level of complicity in a government that looks increasingly illegitimate. And, and I just really disrespect the people who voted for this. And I think it's amazing that Corker is described as a deficit hawk because he cares about adding a trillion dollars to the deficit. No, that's not a hawk. That's just How deficit do you not care common about sense. That? Yes. Well, and here's the other thing, too. So I will say something that I agree with with the tax bill. And I hope this means I can skip compliment the other side because this is hard enough. So I do not, the way this was covered in the media today, and I think I was watching, listening to The Daily too, and they said, they've decided to tax college endowments, which that's really problematic because endowments are used to fund scholarships that increase the diversity in higher education. Okay. With love. Um, maybe a tiny portion of them. But I've got huge problems with higher education right now and the way that their finances are aligned. And if I, I mean, I believe Harvard's endowment is at a billion dollars or something bananas and it ain't going to scholarships. It's not that expensive to go to Harvard. So sell it somewhere else, guys. I hate those massive endowments. I don't care that they're being taxed. And. If you can't find room in these chameleon dollar endowments after some taxes to still fund diversity in higher education, then it's not your priority, not necessarily the Senate's. Sorry. I just I did not have much sympathy for that argument. There are just so many philosophically inconsistent things in the tax bill. Mm -hmm. Like you can find some to agree with and disagree with wherever you are if you really think about it, because it's a mess. Yep. And sometimes legislation is. There is there is a sausage making element and there are trade-offs and negotiations. And I agree with the people who say we can't let the perfect get in the way of the good. But the thing is, the good doesn't exist when there is no bipartisanship in the process for something mm -hmm. that infects the entire country. And I was so offended by Mitch McConnell's statement that if you're complaining about process, it's because you're losing. Oh, no. that was, oh, 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 sorry. I don't have any good insight on that except for oh, when he said that it made me so mad. Well, it made me mad, too, because the process of this was rushed one month from proposal to passage for an overhaul of the tax code. No. 51 to 49 for an overhaul of the tax code completely on partisan lines? No, that is worth complaining about. There should not be losers to the tune of half the country on something just, as fundamental as the tax code. And they're all like, oh, it's so urgent to provide this tax relief. Come on, give me a break. We're in a recovery. We're not in this bottomed out recession. No one believes that. And let me tell you something else. Yes. 
This is a big old bell with lots of problems. But if I had to pick one thing that is representative of why this tax bill is reprehensible is the idea that you would make a permanent tax cut for corporations and temporary tax cuts for most American families. How would you like to justify that to me? I think that that underscores the point that the infusion of capital into the United States is not going to be as great as is being sold. Mm -hmm. This is going to have to be paid for at some point. It's going to have to because it's not going to pay for itself. Well, and here's the thing. Go ahead. ahead. Um, I listened to a really interesting Freakonomics on the, the title was, Are We Out of Big Ideas? Are We Out of Good Ideas? And it was a really interesting The argument was basically in the 20th century, in the industrial age and second industrial age, there was a lot of low hanging fruit like you. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, Regency era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week. So in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to D-I-P-S-E-A stories.com slash pantsuit. Dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. If you're looking for a very quick salon quality but not salon priced manicure, Olive and June has you covered. We've talked about Olive and June's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box, salon grade tools, your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are gonna last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive and June also has press-ons if you want. What I love though, is that Olive and June each season is coming out with new colors. And I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick dry polish. And they say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash pantsuit for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space. 
to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash pantsuit. No, electricity and penicillin and like just a lot of sort of big ideas that like multiple people were sort of stumbling on in their garages at the same time. We are not there anymore. We are now talking about um, millions and millions of dollars in research and development across industries to eke out small gains, small efficiencies. And that's why we don't see this huge increase in productivity in our economy that we expected um, with all this new technology, which I thought was a really fascinating um, argument. And at the end, the guy was like, look, I think what we need to accept is that for most of human history, 1% growth was just like bananas good. This idea that we would have 4% growth like we did mid-century, that was a blip. That wasn't the standard. That's not where we're going to stay. And why would we want to? Like, I just kind of feel like I understand why we would want to in short-term consequences. But like, as we look around at climate change and we look around at our global economy, do we really think that just growth, growth, growth for growth's sake is always good? And even if it is good, it's not really necessarily achievable. If you look back, 1% growth for most of human history, 2% growth was really great. And we're so unhappy with 2% growth right now. And so this idea that we're building an entire tax bill on the idea that we're just going to blossom back in and stay at three, four, five percent growth is so ludicrous. And I just think we need to readjust our expectations. I agree with that. And I think the other reason that we're having old conversations is because we're having old conversations. Mm-hmm. Most of what's in this bill are the, these are ideas that have been around for 40, 50, 60 years. Yep. There are fights that people have been fighting. Another thing that The Daily made a point about today is that Lisa Murkowski's father was fighting for the ability to drill in the Alaskan wildlife reserves. Like, that's not a new conversation. These are old fights that the Republicans saw a limited window of time to win. And so that's what they chose instead of saying, let's have a new conversation about where we are today in 2017 going into 2018. Yeah, that's my friend Tyler made a really interesting point on Facebook where he was basically like, it just feels so desperate to me. It feels like they either know more than we do about the future of the Trump administration. They see the writing on the wall for the 28 midterm elections. And that's just like they're just like, well, let's just do what we can. Let's just get it in as quick as we can because our opportunity is about to be over, which is a really ridiculous way to legislate. Also, a really ridiculous sort of um, case to make to the American people about why they should keep you in power. I think that's right. I mean, again, there are some things in here that I don't think are terrible. The the drilling in Alaska, like if I lived in Alaska, I would fight like hell about that, but I don't. And so I'm okay with Alaska making that decision for itself. The Johnson Amendment, oh. 
has uh. been repealed as part of all of this. <sighs> so my solution to whether churches and nonprofit organizations can be politically active would have been to end their tax exempt yeah, status. Yeah, seriously. If like that's and fine. you're trying to revenue raise anyway. Be, I think that would be more appropriate anyway. You know, but have those debates where the entire country can participate in them because these are things that that impact the entire country. Like even if you agreed with every single thing in this bill, and I don't know how anybody with any kind of consistent political philosophy could, but let's say that you did. Like I agree with ending the individual mandate, but in context of changing the overall health care system, not just on its own, that's irresponsible. Mm. This is just let's cram a bunch of things through and then let the chips fall. Oh, it's so frustrating. Uh, speaking speaking of letting the chips fall, we going to fund the government? Anybody? Anybody? Mitch McConnell says they're going to. They got till we'll Friday. See. It'll be interesting to see whether the Democrats are able to exercise enough leverage here to get some other things done like DACA. I think that's the question. I think I there's not going to be the I think they're going to have a lot of trouble because now I'm reading a lot that says like Trump is well, he wants to get his base back by being hardline on immigration. So I, it's any sort of momentary um, fuel for their fire they had from Trump, I think, is gone. So I don't know what's going to happen. Well, he's using this um, acquittal of the Kate's Law oh, yeah. killer uh, to bring back the whole build the wall business. Mm. And again... The president commenting on a case that could go up on appeal. I just don't understand why why this is happening and where the White House lawyers are. But I think you're right that he is going to go very hard line, especially as the heat from the Mueller investigation increases. Oh, I'm so over it. I'm just so over it. Okay, but that's not that's not helpful analysis. So moving on, uh, CBS <laughs> and Aetna uh, have proposed a merger. And I wanted to add this because the coverage I'm seeing is basically CVS and Aetna want to merge. They want to um, – their argument is we will produce um, more affordable health care options by putting a lot of those, like, health, community health clinics you see um, popping up in um, Walmart, I think, has some, and Kroger has some. And the, the argument on the other side is, oh, well, this reduces consumer options. They might have to buy their prescriptions at CVS. Okay. With love, this is this is where Sarah's going to sound a little bit more like a conservative because people are swimming in options now with like because everybody just feels like they just have all these great affordable options with health care. You know what? If they feel like they can take a crack at it, great, because nobody else is trying. So let's do that. That's great. You guys do that because I think most Americans would trade off having to buy their prescriptions at CVS if it meant they had more affordable, particularly primary care options. Thanks. And I probably will sound a little bit like uh, anti-business here <laughs> because I worry. I am worried about the state of mergers in our country. Yeah. And I'm worried about the Federal Trade Commission. I'm worried that the Trump administration is using it to settle scores instead of to develop a new coherent policy-guided approach to— Were you tripping um, over the word coherent in relationship to the Trump administration? It's it's a struggle for me. I, I, I think we need— as a country, to have a serious discussion about corporate power, even though I believe in business and I believe in the private sector, I don't think there's anything evil about millionaires and billionaires. 
I still think that we are coming up to levels of consolidation that make competition impossible. So like you, Sarah, I applaud everybody who's trying to be innovative in the healthcare space. I think this is particularly fascinating given the instability in the healthcare space. Mm. This is a big gamble on the parts of these companies about what the future of healthcare looks like. And so I want to think more about what that means and maybe what they know or what they're thinking about or what they'll be lobbying for. And maybe this maybe this works and it's fine. But overall, I am worried about all of the merger activity in our country. All right, moving Ronald on. Ronald Reagan would be so disappointed. I know he's rolling in his grave. So we are going to move on to talk about the um, chip expiration and other ways in which we value or don't value children in public policy. episodes ago, Sarah, you said as an aside that we say we care about children, but maybe we don't because we haven't reauthorized CHIP. And I thought that was worth some further discussion. And then we found a couple of other articles that really caught our attention that also spoke to that issue. Yeah, I mean, I have thought this and I'm not the first person making this point. I also thought this... um, about this in relationship to women. I was listening to how um, we're finally getting the backlog of rape kids done in Kentucky, and I thought, there's a good indication of where our values actually lay, that we um, let rape kids sit untested. But with regards to children, CHIP is a um, health insurance fund for lower and middle income families that otherwise earn too much to be eligible for Medicaid. So this was Hillary Clinton's um, legacy from the healthcare debates during her husband's administration. They couldn't get that through, so they got chipped through. And it benefits about 9 million children nationwide and 370,000 pregnant women each year. It is paid with, with both state and federal funds, but the federal government covers close to 90% of the cost. So your income eligibility um, varies depending on what state you live in. But about 90% of children who qualify are from families earning 200% of poverty or less, which is about $40,000 for a family of three. And it covers children up to the age of 19. Uh, States have the option to cover pregnant women in 18 states, plus the District of Columbia do so. So they have diff- it has different names depending on which state you live in. But to keep the program going, it would cost the federal government $8.5 billion over five years. That is what the CBO estimates. And it expired on September 30th. And Congress has said on a bipartisan basis that this is a great program, that it needs to be reauthorized. Oh, we're going to get it done. We're going to get it done in October. No, we're going to get it done in November. Now it's, oh, we'll definitely get it done by the end of the year. But it hasn't happened yet. And no one seems to be challenging the validity of the program itself. It's more how do we pay for it? Which is very frustrating, given the tax bill that just yeah. went through. I don't think y'all are that care- worried about paying for stuff anymore, are we? We're just going to do it. Senator Hatch was particularly frustrating over the weekend Ugh. because he made some really insensitive comments about, you know, finding the money to do this when some of these families won't lift a finger and just just some really terrible Nastiness. statements. I saw where Emily Ellsworth, who's also a friend of the podcast, tweeted that 
That's not surprising if you follow Utah politics, because he tends to take a hard right when it comes close to election time. Mm. And so this kind of follows a predictable pattern for him of being more centrist and then then harder right and then kind of going back to more centrist well, it was once interesting, he's been reelected. Though, on a side note, because he wasn't supposed to be running for reelection and it was supposed to be Mitt Romney that was going to run for his seat because he's really old. Um, but now he's not. Now he's being noncommittal. And they think that Trump is encouraging him to run again because he doesn't like Mitt Romney. So there's a little political gossip for you on the side. <laughs> so Chip is one indicator, I think, of whether children are a priority or not. Another indicator is the tax credit. Sarah, do you want to talk about that? I know that you've been following this pretty closely. So the tax bill, which the Senate voted on at 2 a.m., I think on Saturday morning, um, it doubles the current non-refundable tax credit from $1,000 annually per child to $2,000, which is more generous um, than what the House passed. And so this has like a, been a big um, push for from Ivanka Trump. It's been supported by Mark Rubio and Mike Lee. And so they got it through this tax bill. But what's fascinating is then they wanted to raise the corporate rate from 20% to 21% to pay for an $87 billion expansion of the credit to over 10, year, over 10 years to millions more low-income Americans, many of whom don't pay federal income taxes, so they don't benefit from the non-refundable credit. Okay. What I think is interesting is procedurally is I don't think they needed to vote on that. It's their amendment. I think they could have updated. I, I just was reading a lot on Twitter that was like, why, are, why is Rubio like trying to convince people? He can just change it. Did you read any of that? I did not. Well, it didn't. The amendment failed. And so they got some of they got the 2000 credit, which is what Ivanka was pushing for. And they got that. But they could have expanded it to all these millions more of low Americans, I think, without a vote. So it's really confusing as to why they didn't take that. What's even more frustrating is after this conversation of, oh, we can't raise what we definitely can't raise the corporate tax rate. Well, not even raise. We can't reduce it by one percent less to help millions more of low-income Americans. Can't do that because Trump wants it at 20. And then Trump comes out and is like, 22 would be fine. What the hell? (laughs) So I got kind of pulled in by our listener, Jeff, and thank you for this, Jeff, to a thread from Ross Duthat, who is a conservative columnist um, for the New York Times, I think. And he was arguing that everyone should be supportive of this because we are in a baby bust right now. People are not having as many children. If you care about families, this should be a no-brainer. You should do this. And I started thinking about that and how, on the one hand, this seems, that does seem like a no-brainer. Like, who is not for families? On the other hand, if what you're really trying to do is simplify the tax code and come to a simpler fair, flatter tax code, as Republicans are fond of saying, and you believe in the limited role of government, I think we should stop using tax policy as a lever to encourage people to have children. Mm. And I know that's an unpopular opinion, but I would put it alongside my opinion that we should stop having exemptions for nonprofit and religious organizations. Like, I just think that's not the function of the tax code. But it got me thinking about what would a family-friendly a federal agenda look like? What is an appropriate family-friendly federal agenda? Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. 
They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code PANTSUIT at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. And that takes me to this story from Politico. Politico did an investigation into reporting to the Department of Education the treatment of special needs children in schools across the United States, in public schools across the United States. So special needs children are protected by a piece of legislation called IDEA that has a lot of requirements in it. And some of those requirements pertain to data collection at the federal level. And this piece specifically looked at when special needs children are disciplined through restraint and isolation. It is a horrific read of what happens to these children. 
and how few schools accurately report to the Department of Education when they are using restraint and isolation. And I'm sure that there are lots of stories of restraint and isolation being used in ways that don't produce the heartbreaking stories that were described in this piece. I have a hard time imagining what those scenarios look like, though. And as I was thinking about, you know, what is the role of the Federal Department of Education? Data collection on practices that break children's bones, that increase suicide rates, that have led to death in some instances to identify patterns so that we can oversee situations that appear to be out of control seems appropriate to me. Yeah, I can tell you one thing. There's not a scenario in which my child is restrained and when restrained in which you can justify it to me. I'm just going to be honest. Um, And I don't ever understand in this scenario with gun violence in which we don't want data collection or we're not supportive of data collection. Or we're just this isn't even like we need to change the legislation. We just need you guys to enforce it. Why is this right. a problem? Right. When children are consistently suing school systems for these things happening, and yet from those school districts, you receive forms that have zeros across them. And that's what Politico is describing. The school districts are just turning in forms with rows full of zeros that they never, ever use these practices. And they are clearly using these practices. That's a problem. And the Department of Education under Betsy DeVos seems to be pivoting in the approach from looking for patterns in the data to investigate situations where these seem to be routine practices to viewing them more in a one-off sense. And that feels completely different to me than what the purpose of a federal Department of Education might be. I mean, I think the collection of data at the federal level is a unique ability that the federal government has that states can't replicate otherwise. Mm -hmm. And so when I think about that, when I think about the opioid epidemic, when I think about what could really benefit kids that has to be done at the federal level, where you'd think we could have some bipartisan consensus, that kind of information rises to the top pretty quickly for me. It also makes me think about how you cannot support children without supporting parents. And so that's where I look at CHIP, and I don't understand why we're having trouble funding CHIP. There's probably a long list of other things. I guess I'm just kind of coming to your point, Sarah, of we should stop saying we care about kids so much if we aren't going to actually do these things that help improve children's lives. So a few weeks later or a few weeks ago, um, somebody tweeted us that they were at a environmental policy symposium or some sort of conference. And the climate scientist was talking about um, the future of our planet. And she got very emotional and she said, I don't want this for my kids. I don't want this for my kids. And the person who tweeted us said, wouldn't it be wonderful if we had, in this instance, more mothers emotional saying with regards to policy, I I see the impact on my kids and I don't want this. And I can't help but think that this is another 
call to arms for more women in leadership because the reason um, children are so often at the bottom of the list is because they are not a powerful lobby on their own. We cannot elect children to Congress. Children are not historically great fundraisers or lobbyists. And so we are dependent on the people in their lives to advocate for them. And I think for better or for worse, perhaps because in our society, women are most often the primary caretakers of children, that we need that. We need more people saying, this is important. This is vital to the interest of our nation. This is not a special interest. This is all of our interest. I feel the way I feel about children and their interests, the way I feel about the importance of diversity. Be selfish. This is in your best interest. The children of today that you are ignoring their health care needs, their special education needs, are the workers of tomorrow who are frustrated, excluded from the economy, driven to crime. You know, lead poisoning in children was too often brushed off. But we now know that probably a huge impact of our decreasing crime rate in the 70s and 80s was because of our prevention efforts with regards to lead poisoning, because that causes mental problems that often lead to criminal behavior. So, you know, I can sing Whitney Houston all day long and we can have emotions about it, but if you would rather just be a logical, pragmatic, you know, cold, hard facts kind of person, it serves all of us to value children and their futures because their future is our future. And, you know, I have to believe that electing more women, electing more mothers, mothers of young children with their unique perspectives will help, will help us do that more. Because, you know, I think what happens is it just becomes... I don't know if it's a children are resilient. I don't know if it's a there are more fish to fry. You know, I had a conversation once on Facebook after Donald Trump's Access Hollywood tape in which a father of two daughters told me basically, well, I would kill somebody who raped my my daughters, but we have really important things to pay attention to here. Sexual assault isn't one of them. And I was incredibly disturbed by that, have never really stopped thinking about it. But I think we do that a lot with kids. We think basically, yeah, but... Yeah, but this is more important. Yeah, but we got to spend the money here. Yeah, but because they're easy to ignore in mass quantities because they don't lobby and they don't fundraise and they don't vote. So it's dependent on adults who say, no, this is not a special interest. This is a vital interest to our nation before we're really going to see openly valuing children and families and public policy. Because I keep thinking back to when we started way back in 2000, I don't know if it was 2015, but it was the two mothers who had lost children. It was the one mother in um, New York City who had dropped her baby off the first day of daycare and it died. And then you had another mother whose child died in daycare. And they they went to both Donald Trump's campaign headquarters and Hillary Clinton's campaign headquarters and said... Like, this is not acceptable. And I remember feeling like, oh, my gosh, I think this conversation might change. I think we might get somewhere. And then it just became Donald Trump and the parade of men. And that issue fell off the table. And Ivanka Trump seems to be trying with the tax credit, and that's appreciated. But I am 
not going to apologize for the fact that Hillary Clinton has a long history of sticking up for children and women in ways that other political figures didn't and never have. And I do believe that it would have been different under her. And I do believe we would have seen children as a policy priority in ways we had never seen from the White House. And so that makes our current situation even more frustrating. As we continue this national sorting out of our values period that I think we're painfully in right now, something that I've been noticing about the people in my life, people in my immediate sphere, are the people who think long-term versus the people who think Mm short-term. And I don't see that as being attributable to any demographic. I think there are very long-term thinkers who don't have children. Like, you don't have to have a child. Just like you don't have to have a daughter to care about sexual harassment. Right. You don't have to have a child to care about the future, to care about your about generations of humans who will exist after you. Right. And I don't think this is particular to baby boomers, Gen X, or millennials either. I think that there are just some people who are short-term thinkers and some people who are long-term thinkers. And I think that we need many more long-term thinkers in positions of leadership because we are making decisions right now. And I would argue that this tax bill is yet another very poignant example that will benefit some people immediately. But over the long term, we'll have really significant impacts. And I just, I'm not sure where we all decided, where such a large contingency of people decided life is just for the taking for me. Mm-hmm. But that seems to be where we are and as so, a majority in yeah. our country. And that's not a sustainable path forward. And I feel like there are a lot of people who just don't care. When I think about the argument of, look, we need to have Donald Trump because he's going to shake it all up and it needs to be shaken up. And if it doesn't work, eh, that's that's not a good argument. It's a very privileged argument argument for sure. And it's a short-term thinking argument. Mm -hmm. It's saying if it doesn't work, eh, probably won't affect me that much. Yep. I don't have that much on the line. But when you're, you know, and that's the thing, it's easy to, when you're taking, it's, it's easy to ignore kids because they're weaker and they're not a powerful group. And so if they get at the bottom of the list, what are the real consequences politically for that? Honestly, are there any? Not in the short term. So I guess when you think about a a pro-children agenda, you know, healthcare is obviously high up there. I think data collection at the Department of Education belongs on that list. What else comes to mind for you, Sarah? Climate policy. Absolutely. Um, I I think the national debt factors into that discussion very Mm -hmm. significantly in terms of creating an economy for the future that will be sustainable. Or any attention at all to the growing presence of technology in our national life and with the impact of our elections, with the impact on our privacy, the impact of our economy, um, growing monopolies. I think those huge, like very hard to think about future oriented conversations about growing industries like that. I want that for my kids. I want Congress to be paying attention to that stuff now so that it doesn't we don't have terrible consequences that we have to sort out on the back end. Mm hmm. And all of that really does come down to needing some shared national values mm-hmm. because you just can't grow policies without some consensus 
values about the future of our country. Well, you know, in the state of Kentucky, cities are required to have a comprehensive plan every 10 years where you sit down and you think about your priorities as a city and you think about upcoming challenges and you put together a comprehensive plan for you sort of as your guiding light and your reference. And I kind of wish we just had that as a nation. Mm-hmm. I wish we could all just say like, we need a comprehensive plan. What's our comprehensive plan? Where do we want to see the United States in 10, 20 years? What do we think our challenges are going to be? What do we think that um, areas we want to grow? Where do we think that there are areas that are in desperate need of fixing and improvement? Like, let's talk about a comprehensive. That's why, you know, it's not just children. It's why we don't have good infrastructure planning, because that's a hard thing to think about. And that's a hard thing to plan for. And it costs and it takes sacrifice. And, you know, you're going to have to agree to things you might not like. I just this is going to be the conversation um, preview of our conversation on the nuanced life. But there's just there's a part of me that wants to say to every adult human being in America, like we've agreed to live together. That means because we are a group agreeing to certain things, some things are going to happen that you don't like. That's what happens when you live in a group, everyone. And I just feel like we can't get there. No, because we're too busy having elections. I mean, I think that's the thing. Most of us have decided that elections are, that elections are our national conversation about what we want for the future. Just presidential that's not ones. working. Just presidential, though. It's only we even do that right. big time otherwise. Uh. But but the legislatures are where the the rubber meets the road on all of that. And our legislators are constantly running. Mm-hmm. And so we need to have some kind of process that influences elections uh, instead of being driven by them, I think. Absolutely. That's probably a good note to wrap this section up on. And next, we'll very briefly talk about what's on our minds outside of politics this week. What's on your mind outside of politics, Beth? You know, I'm in such a transitional phase. I shared on Friday's episode that I am leaving my job of 11 years to focus full time on our podcast and on some personal coaching work. And I feel so up in the air in so many ways. It's the most groundless I've ever felt. Mm. And there's something really wonderful and freeing about it. I also am finding it very difficult to keep up with everything because I'm trying to kind of bridge my old life and my new one right now. And so I'm just feeling a little bit untethered, you know, and, and thinking about, I'm trying to like both be in that and also be observing it because there's so much good stuff to learn from that. Right. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It's tough though. It's tough. You want to react instead of just taking a breath. Yeah, I decided if I were queen for a day, and this pertains to all the discussions that we just had to, I think I would put into place some kind of standard that we all sleep on everything. <laughs> that's the best thing I'm oh. recognizing in my life right now. Before I make a decision, I need to sleep on it. Before I respond to something that has upset me, I need to sleep on it. It's just really helpful to take a beat And I'm internalizing that more than ever, I think, as I'm in what feels like really uncharted territory for me personally. What are you thinking about? 
Well, I have got my house settled, my Christmas unpacked, and I find myself with leisure time for the first time in about a month, which is pretty exciting. Although we did have the buyer walk on our house. So if anybody wants to move to Paducah, my old house is still for sale. Um, but we, I'm just like reading books and watching movies. I watched um, Mudbound, a movie on Netflix, which was fantastic about two families post-World War II in Mississippi. I um, also went to see Thor Ragnarok. Ragnarok? I don't know how to pronounce it, but it was a treat and so fun. And I am currently almost done with A Man Called Ove, which I am super behind. Everybody else has read this book. And now I know why, because it is such a delight. I love him so much. This book is so great. I just can't say enough about it. I know I'm like a solid two years behind on raving about this book, but I am really, really enjoying it. So I'm just, I'm just... Living the dream right now, having a little bit of leisure time as opposed to being on my fa- feet, unpacking, organizing, cleaning from dust till dawn. Good for you. Um, also, we now have a Pantsu Politics email. So you can email um, us or Megan at bookclub at pantsuitpoliticsshow.com if you have questions for our upcoming chat with Ann Bogle of Reading People. So Megan's going to be chatting with Ann on our Facebook page. Um, we're really excited about that. So go check out our Facebook group's um, Pantsuit Politics Book Club page for more information. We will be back with you on Friday for another episode of Fancy Politics, but you don't have to wait that long to hear from us again because Wednesday we'll have a new episode of The Nuanced Life out and we're going to pick up the conversation that we had on Fancy Politics on Friday about give and take and relationships. So hopefully you'll join us over there. And until you speak with us again, keep it nuanced, y'all. Thank you so much to our executive producers, Nicholas, Chad, Tracy, Leslie, Sabrina, and George. You can join us on social media, Instagram and Facebook at Pantsuit Politics and on Twitter at Pantsuit Politic, no S. And if you'd like to support the show, you can go to patreon.com or reviews are always helpful and you can leave one through the Apple Podcast app. Thank you to Dante Lima, the composer of our Pantsuit Politics theme music. 